You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. I want to begin our sermon not in Joshua. We will get there. But I want to turn to Psalm 84. You're welcome to turn there or if, or if you say, I could use the time to get to Joshua, do that first. But Psalm 84, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. And then we'll look at our text of of Joshua today. I want to kind of preface it with this psalm. So Psalm 84, just the entire psalm here, read it 1 through 12, says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in You. Let me just pray again for our time here. Lord, we just come. I come specifically for this time. This time in Your Word to open it up. Particularly the book of Joshua and the ninth chapter. Lord, you know where we're at. You've providentially guided that this particular passage is what we would study for today. And so, Lord, again, we pray for your spirit to bless this time, for your name to be glorified through the time we have together. Lord, I pray we would see your word as true, something we can hold on to that's eternal and that works in us. Help us to value it. And in so doing, Lord, value you, value our Savior, Jesus Christ. So we pray again for our time that you would guide us through this. In your name, amen. Okay, so now turn to the book of Joshua, chapter 9, if you're not there already. I did not get... Weston's picture in the PowerPoint, so I'm going to do my best to just hold it up. Is Weston here today? Yeah, there you go, yeah. Weston's picture, uh, I s- stole it from the back. You can see the others that are turned in from last week. Here's a, here's a little conversation that took place between Gibeon and, and the Israelites, and they say, they're always winning, let's trick them. So Weston's got that, and then you've got the Israelites going, ah, like this, so... You can see that'll be up there by next week, but thank you, Weston, for drawing that. Well, 
that's where we were last week, verses 1 through 15 of this, this ninth chapter here of Joshua, looking at these two approaches to the threat of Israel, the, the approaches of this threat in the land. To the one, they would seek to fight them, gather the kings, let's go fight with Israel. But to the other, to the Gibeonites, they say, let's save our lives. And we come, they're going to come up with this scheme, a deceptive scheme to trick Israel into letting them live, to making a covenant with them. And that's, that's what we read about last week. They put on the tattered garments and the shoes and everything to make it look like they've come from a far-off land. And they say, we are your servants. Please make a covenant with us, an agreement and a binding oath. We want that. And, and Israel, for a bit, you know, does some questioning. Where are you from? How far? You know, I think they know in their minds they can't make a covenant with the people of the land. It's not something God gave them to do. But uh, they seek it out. Where are you from? We're from a far-off country. Okay. And they, but look at our bread, right? It's crumbly. It's moldy. Okay. And that's where we kind of ended with Joshua making this covenant with the Gibeonites and, and this, this kind of direct statement, they didn't ask counsel of the Lord. They failed to ask the Lord. And so they made peace in this covenant. And so, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story comes in verses 16 and following. And today, we're just going to read a little bit and go on. I won't read the whole thing. We'll just kind of read, discuss a little bit as we go and look through the rest of chapter 9 here. So 16 really begins the rest of this story. So at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, <clears throat> They heard, that's Israel, they heard that they were neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Shepherah, Beroth, and Kiriath, Jerim. The reference here to this time stamp, at least in these, it says at the end of three days after they had made a covenant, there's kind of this three days later makes me wonder here, as they go out to find these villages, these three days, in the end six days, if this covenant ceremony that they made to make a covenant, it was more than just what we would think of handshake, good, we're together, or just a simple verbal agreement. It's been said there's six elements to a covenant-making ceremony. Perhaps some of these were going on in these three days. Uh, a sacrifice would take place. Number two, a solemn oath. There was some writing, maybe writing down of the covenant. A meal, to share a meal together. There were benefits for obedience. You know, if we obey, if you obey, hey, this is beneficial. But if you don't, and then the sixth element, there's curses for disobedience, this sort of thing, for breaking the covenant. So I'm not certain here that all these elements were there, but I think it can explain perhaps why these three days had elapsed. And then two events happen within these verses as the reader's taken, I think, to what was this like for Israel? They've made this covenant, and then they heard that they were neighbors. That's one of them. They, they hear this in verse 16. They hear their neighbors. And verse 17, they go out and, in fact, confirm that this is the case. They go out to these places. Kind of like, perhaps, buying a car. You know, here's the money for the car. And then you test drive it. Or maybe then you take it to, to a mechanic after you've purchased it and see if it's really a good car. Kind of they're, they're doing this investigation afterwards. 
And in the case of Israel here, what they really got, they got a covenant with an inhabitant of the land, which according to Exodus 34 was not supposed to happen. They were not supposed to do this. So some six days after this covenant is made, Israel makes it to the land of the Gibeonites. Now, if you can think of Jerusalem, I don't have the map up here today, but, but um, I think it was some 20 miles away from where they were. So depending on how fast they could travel, some six miles northwest of Jerusalem were kind of these clusters of these four cities that we read about, Cherfra, Berath, all these, these cities here, kind of this Gibeon area. So they arrived there. They had made a covenant with these people. But instead of getting there and making war and warring and destroying these people, we read this in verse 18. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. The text tells us here, Gibeon was not attacked. Why? Why did they not attack this? Because of an oath, because of a promise, a covenant had been made. Not even just an oath, but an oath sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, which really, I think, expands the prominence of this oath. I mean, God's name was on the line. That's who they swore by, this oath. But the end of the verse tells us not everybody in the congregation was happy with this, especially the congregation. They murmured or grumbled against the leaders, and for good reason, they did. I mean, these were inhabitants. They were to be destroyed. And there was significant potential uh, for them to draw Israel away from God, perhaps by their uh, sinful practices. And we know, according to verse 14, they had not sought the counsel of the Lord, so the so leadership had made an error here, a grievous error. The people grumble. <clears throat> but making one error does not mean they need to repeat their errors or their blunders. And so look at the response then of the leadership in verses 19 through 20. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them, let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath that we swore to them. Numbers chapter 30, verse 2 says this about vows and oaths. If a man vows a vow to the Lord, (coughs) excuse me, or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. There's one commentary that makes this helpful observation about the the reluctance of the leadership of Israel here to go back on their word. Why would they they not just go, well, you know, you lied to us, covenant's broken, that sort of thing. Here's perhaps some helpful commentary. It says, they were afraid of bringing the name of the God of Israel into contempt among the Canaanites, which they would have done if they had broken the oath which they had sworn by this God, and had destroyed the Gibeonites. You see what they're saying here? If Israel breaks the oath with Gibeon, it reflects poorly on their covenant-keeping God. But this also doesn't mean that making the oath in the first place was right. It's just that here they are. I mean, now 
Here's the position they're in right now. They shouldn't have. They did, and here they are. However wrongly it came about, they're bound to keep this oath or face, I think, the wrath of God whose name would be taken in vain. So they made this oath by God. It's to uphold really the name of God by keeping the oath. Look then at verse 21. And the leader said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Gibeon is allowed to live because of an oath. Despite their failures, the leaders lead in the midst of grumbling and say, let them live. And they give them their role. Really, what are they? They're lumberjacks and they're water boys. That's who they became. And we're going to look more at that in a little bit. But I just want to bring in just one unique story, lest we think, well, maybe they shouldn't have kept this oath. One story to, to show how significant this oath was, how binding it was on Israel. And it's a story involving Saul, King Saul, who became king of Israel, the first king of Israel. Second Samuel 21 tells us of a famine in the land of Israel, some 400 years later, so we're here, maybe some time of David, 1000 B.C. We're at around 1400 B.C., so 400 years forward in the future. This is happening. There's a famine in the land. It says this. It says, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And here's what the Lord said. There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. We don't have the details. They're not spelled out here. But Saul, now interestingly, Saul was a Benjamite, which is the same region of Gibeon. So perhaps Saul, King Saul, grew up kind of despising these Gibeonites. Maybe once he was king, he said, finally, here's my chance. We haven't been able to kill them, but they're just, I don't like them, whatever. Somehow, there's blood guilt. He, he put them to death. And so 2 Samuel 21.2 says this. It says, Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. You hear that? 400 years later, there's a famine in the land because the Gibeonites are a protected people. So this little excursion into Saul's guilt here regarding Gibeon, it tells us that the oath that Israel had sworn to Gibeon, it was binding. The covenant took precedence over the deception of Gibeon and the command of Israel to destroy all the inhabitants of the land. The covenant was binding. Well, in the text, the narrative narrows then to a conversation between Joshua and the Gibeonites. And I think there's kind of a back and forth of Joshua question and an answer. I'll try to, we're going to kind of jump a little bit here. I'll try to keep you with us uh, to look at this. There's a question, then a little bit later there's a response. We'll look at that. So verse 22, Joshua summoned them and he said to them, why did you deceive us saying, we are very far from you when you dwell among us? So Joshua asked this question, why? I mean, some we know, we know, we can see some. I think they had already heard of what was going on. They came with cunning, and here Joshua is saying, why have you done this? 
to us. Now, their answer comes in verse 24. So skip verse 23 for now. We'll come back. Look at verse 24. Here's the answer. Gibeon, why did you do this? Here's their answer. They answered Joshua. Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. There's, there's emphasis here in the Hebrew. There's some emphasis that this it was told your servants for certainty. That's why you might have, the, I don't know what other words you have, but a certainty, for certainty. There's emphasis. It was told us. And we knew this was coming. And notice, they refer to themselves as your servants. It was told to your servants. They're, they're in that role. We're your servants, Joshua. But it was told us with certainty. And they had heard that God commanded Israel to destroy all who dwelt in the land. So they believed, and so they feared for their lives. And here's how pagans saved their life, through deception. So we're going to lose our life. Let's try to deceive and make some covenant We'll be their servants. It doesn't matter. We don't want to be destroyed. So they make this covenant. They deceive. Joshua's question then, so why did you deceive us? Simple answer. We believed your God would destroy us. So we did this to be saved. But then look at verse 23. Joshua says this as well. He says, Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. This, this idea of cursing, therefore you are cursed, one commentary points out the fulfillment in part here goes way back, back to Genesis 9. After the flood, Noah's son Ham, the father who is the father of the Canaanites, who we're kind of dealing with here, he does a wicked, sinful act, and he's therefore cursed by his father Noah. I mean, we're back in Genesis 9, this cursing. Noah declares, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And so, in part, the Gibeonites would be servants. Perhaps that's the idea of the cursing here, servants. Cutters of wood, drawers of water for the house of God. But I wonder, picture yourself as a Gibeonite. I mean, we know Israel, some are grumbling about the leaders. The leaders are saying, we swore an oath. Here's where we're at. Think of yourself as a Gibeonite. What would that be like? You're going to be servants. You're going to cut wood for us. You're going to draw water. Now, a lot of commentaries that I look at say, you know, this is pretty low, and it is low class. This is menial. This is what work needs to be done. They're servants. But I wonder what they thought. I mean, they, they were enemies. These folks had been written off for condemnation. And they become workers involved with both the water of the sanctuary. I think some, in some sense the cleansing water that they would, they would bring for the sanctuary, tabernacle, temple, and the sacrifices. You needed wood to burn sacrifices. They brought the wood. I mean, is, is God showing something through this despised nation who sinned by deception and yet by God's grace, by means of a covenant... They're allowed to live. Not only live, but they're part of the work of the worship of the sanctuary forever. So there's a curse. The curse of Joshua was servanthood, which was, for the Gibeonite, most, I 
Think of it as a blessing, much better than death. And so verse 25, Gibeon responds to Joshua and says, And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. We're in your hand. In essence, we're yours. We trust your decisions. And I think this marks their servanthood, but it also their trust. Israel's going to do what's good and right, which, which would be to hold their oath and not kill them. They're, kinda, they're trusting. These guys are going to hold their oath. You know, We're trusting you to do what's good and right. So here we have, again, an accursed nation, Gibeon, who at least seems to fear God. They seem to submit to His ways through His people. And then verses 26 and 27 kind of close out this story. The story of Gibeon's deception. So look at the last part. Verse 26. So he did this to them. Joshua did. Delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel. And they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood. and Drawers of water for the congregation. And for the altar of the Lord. To this day. In the place that he should choose. Remember what Joshua's name means? Yeshua, God, is salvation. God saves. Here Joshua delivers Gibeon from the hand of Israel. Joshua and the leadership of Israel recognized they had made a covenant in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. So Gibeon, a foreign nation, a pagan nation, a nation whom God told them to destroy, they're spared. And I think thus here, the account of Gibeon testifies to the grand narrative of God's redemptive story in Scripture. That sinners and enemies are reconciled to their God. We don't know here, I'm not saying all Gibeon was saved, nor was all Israel. Ultimately, those saved were those who pursued God by faith. But in regard also to the Gibeonites then, verse 27 serving the congregation, these cutters of wood, drawers of water, serving at the altar. Here's what one commentator, Richard Hess, does propose. He says, as servants at the altar, the Gibeonites were not rejected by God. Instead, they joined the worshiping community before God. So here an enemy, enemy, Gibeon, they would go on to serve the people of Israel, all the house of God, and really serve at the altar of the Lord. This account of Gibeon, who as being servants found them serving at the house of the Lord, this is what brought to mind Psalm 84 that we read already. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Think of the Gibeonites. Think of them with this verse. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. I'd rather bring wood for my God, draw some water for my God, than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord, Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in You. And just to look further, 900 years later, you can read in the book of Nehemiah, Israel by that time has sinned again. They've been cast out from the land to the land of Syria, Babylon. And then remember they come back 500, 
500, uh, 400, somewhere around there B.C., they come back to land. So 900 years from when this oath of Gibeon, nine years later, you can read in the book of Nehemiah, it's, it's chapter 3, verse 7, we find, guess who, working to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? Gibeonites. They're there. They're still there 900 years later. An enemy was spared their lives by an oath, not made for the right reasons, should have sought counsel with God. The oath was made, and they're saved. My question for you, for each of you, do you know the mediator of a better covenant? Do you know the one who mediates a better covenant, a better oath? Have you, an enemy of God in your sin, have you been saved from destruction by the promise of a better covenant? Hebrews 7.22 says Jesus is the guarantor, the guarantee of a better covenant. Remember on the night he was to be betrayed, he took the cup and he said symbolically, this is the blood of my covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It's the sacrificial blood of Jesus on the cross paid the penalty we deserved for our sins. It atoned for our sins. We talked about it in Sunday school. And yet Jesus did not remain in the grave. He rose again. And He lives as a forever interceding priest on our behalf. An oath, a covenant to save us completely that we would forever be the people of God. Hebrews 7.25 says of Jesus that, that He is able to save to the uttermost. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. We don't have to worry, 900 years, will the covenant still be there? Forever He intercedes on our behalf by His blood, our Savior Jesus. It's a better covenant. So I ask to you, have you come to Him? Not deceptively like Gibeon, looking all like you got it together, Becoming truthfully, admitting, confessing your sin. Not deceiving yourself any longer, but speaking the truth. I am a sinner and I need you, Jesus. I trust in you to forgive me of my sin. I want to, in closing, just share a couple comments, a couple thoughts on oaths, covenants. They're brief. Number one. Be those kind of people who keep your word. Let us be a people that keeps our word. This story, it's an example of a kept covenant. Despite the circumstances of the shame, despite that they should not have done it, all these, they should have sought counsel, but here they are. Remember Numbers 32, 30 verse 2. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. I mean, for certain, please be careful what you vow. Be careful what you promise. Take time. Seek counsel. Seek counsel of the Lord. Seek counsel of the brethren whom the Lord has given us. Seek counsel. Then be trustworthy. Be a word-keeping people. Why? Because it reflects our, oath, our, our oath-keeping, covenant-keeping God. Our word-keeping God. If we don't keep our word, it reflects on God in a poor way. 
Because our God, He's a covenant-keeping God. And so may we be like Him in our own covenants. And then number two, so just two here. So keep your word. Number two, God uses wayward, ill-informed decisions for His glory and good. He used Joseph. He used the, the trouble of the brothers that should not have thrown him in the, the well. God used that to save the people of Israel from famine. Brothers could have said, we should not have done that. They shouldn't have. They shouldn't have put it in the well. God, though, works through this. And case in point here for us is Gibeon, through whom Israel, eventually we're going to see them defend Gibeon by fighting against these five kings. And, and through that fighting, Israel's going to conquer the southern part of Israel through this whole mess of what they're in. It's amazing how God works through what we look at as messes. Uh, later on, Solomon. Remember Solomon. Solomon, ask anything of me. And he prays for wisdom and understanding. You know where he prayed this prayer? In Gibeon. This is fascinating how God works. And then as we saw the book of Nehemiah, they're there working on the wall. God is sovereign over our messed up decisions or ill-conceived vows. Trust Him with the past. Follow Him today. Do the right thing today. story of Gibeon, it's one of tattered garments, moldy bread, ill-informed covenants made by not seeking the counsel of the Lord. It's grumbling, and yet through there's a thread remains of faithfulness to an oath to deliver from destruction based on a covenant and the saving of an enemy by that covenant. Let us be covenant-keeping sons and daughters of the King, Jesus Christ, who's our eternal steadfast. He's a sure anchor of the soul. His blood secures our eternal redemption. And so let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Is faithful.